0: Climate change is no joke. We've already seen hurricanes getting stronger, droughts getting more severe, crops becoming harder to grow, rainfall patterns are changing. Entire island change in the South Pacific might soon go underwater, being the first time that climate change has actually obliterated a country. As a scientist, climate change is what scares me the most, more than asteroids hitting the earth or the rapid spread of a new disease. This is seriously what could do us all in. So are we really just doomed? Well, as for me, I think with every problem comes a reason to hope. If we put enough smart people together, each coming up with new ideas, perhaps we can figure out a way to stop or maybe even reverse climate change. Today I'm talking to two of these smart people about a radical new idea that might be one important tool in taking on climate change. This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You can find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology, and how they relate to our society, technology, ethics, philosophy, culture, and history. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. Spark Dialogue podcast continues to operate with the help of listeners like you. If you like to choose to be a part of our community, you'll be given a chance to participate in the podcast, ask questions to our guests, suggest topics, and even see advanced content. You can find out more information about how to support the podcast on patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. You can find more information about this in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.
1: I am Kauri Helgason. I am a research project manager in the research and development department at Reykjavik Energy.
2: I am Berkus Efuson, a senior geoscientist at the R&D department of Reykjavik
0: Energy. In 2015, almost 200 countries gathered and signed what has come to be known as the Paris Agreement. They agreed that we would work together as one human family to save the planet. Each country would do something different, with the hope that, all together, we would limit the global warming to 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Even better would be limiting the global warming to 1.5 degrees. Now, 2 degrees might not sound like much, but if we go above 2 degrees, the world would be a radically different place.
1: Floods will be more severe and storms will be, will be stronger it will have a variety of effects on the ecosystem for example the the oceans will start to absorb more of the co2 in the atmosphere which will lead to uh, them being more acidic and this can really impact the ecosystem of the oceans and we will see parts of the world that are currently very habitable, very fertile, being uh, less fertile and not very habitable. So this can also lead to mass emigration of what we call uh, climate refugees.
2: What we see if the the temperatures, global temperatures uh, exceed these two degrees, we uh, have the possibility of, of having much bigger fluctuations in weather conditions and areas that are perhaps now but it's susceptible to large and extreme weather conditions. They get more susceptible to even more extreme conditions in terms of both temperature and also in terms of precipitation.
0: Placing the limit on only two degrees is actually quite ambitious, and cutting emissions might not be enough. Many models that stay within this two degrees of warming Suggest that it's not enough just to cut our emissions.
1: Reducing emissions is not enough. And this was highlighted in the Paris Agreement that uh, we are actually beyond the limit of where we can just simply reduce emissions and do nothing else. We have to both reduce emissions, and we have to use uh, other methods such as more efficiency, uh, more reliance on renewable energy, and what Berggruen and I are particularly interested in uh, is is what we call carbon capture and storage.
0: To find out more about this story, we travel to one little country located far in the North Atlantic, Flying into Iceland, you see rolling jagged mountains of treeless green interspersed with psychedelic colors of waters tinted with minerals around natural geysers, and massive waterfalls tumbling into deep canyons. This nation was built from volcanic activity. Now we could start learning about how this little country gets its energy.
2: The primary energy source here in Iceland is hydropower.
0: But another way Iceland gets its energy is from the Earth itself, from the plentiful heat that is in the land directly under the surface.
2: Uh, we also have considerable amount uh, in terms of geothermal power, and one additional advantage of using geothermal is that we can also provide heating with the geothermal energy. Perhaps 20% of the electricity in, in Iceland is produced from geothermal, but almost all of the heating is provided by the geothermal and this saves us a lot of so we don't have to import oil and gas for heating for example and this is something we did in the past but then over the last 50 years we have completely abandoned from the import of fossil fuel for both power production and for heating.
1: And it's interesting to note that, that the start of all this was when oil prices started to spike uh, back in the, in the 50s. And there was a transformation of our energy sectors from reliance on fossil fuels such as coal and oil. And we started utilizing the heat that we, we have underneath us. So Iceland actually sits on top of what we call a hotspot in geology um it's uh, an upwelling of of magma that is uh, that is hotter than than other places and and Iceland also sits uh on top of the mid-Atlantic ridge where the North American plate and the Eurasian plate are moving apart so this is a part of uh, plate tectonics and and continental drift so there's about 1 inch of land being added to Iceland every year. So this is a slow process, but, but uh, it builds up. These special conditions give rise to these opportunities that we can we can use the Earth's heat for producing energy and heat for housing and public pools, etc.
0: So how does one go about getting energy from the heat of the Earth? Since Iceland is a volcanic island, lava is continuing to form more land every year. Underground, this magma heats large reservoirs of water.
2: You can use geothermal in in different ways. One is is simply to drill a shallow well and then you, you pump the hot water out of the well and you distribute this water to the system and you just Put into, put the water into radiators and then we can heat houses. As the temperature increases and then this happens, for example, if you drill into a, into the ground close to a volcano, you can drill into hot enough water so you produce steam. The steam is then taken up to the surface. The steam goes into a turbine that rotates it and then we can create electricity. What we do in our company, we Once we have extracted some of the heat from the steam, we take the condensed water, and we we heat up cold groundwater, and we send that to the distribution system. So we can, from a single borehole, we can produce both electricity and hot water for district heating, for example.
0: This means that this hot water goes into both heating homes and creating electricity. And if you've ever been to Iceland, You can actually smell this. As you take a shower, the water itself smells like sulfur. That's because it's from a volcano. However, this process of forming electricity from heated water is not completely clean. Trapped in the water itself are gases that could escape. Greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide and toxic gases like hydrogen sulfide. These gases could escape the heated water and enter the atmosphere
2: the steam is taken into the power plant and it's essentially 99.5% water, but there is a little bit of the mass that is gas, in particular uh, carbon dioxide.
0: To make this source of energy cleaner, we can take the carbon dioxide out of the steam before it can escape into the atmosphere. This is the revolutionary new idea that Reykjavik Energy is deploying in a project called CarbFix.
2: Usually, or traditionally, CO2 from geothermal power plants is vented to the atmosphere. What we decided to do quite many years ago is to develop a method to capture this CO2 and re-inject it back into the geothermal reservoir instead of emitting it to the atmosphere.
0: This means that all of those gases that could have gone into the atmosphere, contributing to climate change, are instead captured before they can ever escape.
2: The way we do that is collect all the CO2 from the turbines and compress it into like a scrubber, which is essentially just an enclosed shower. The the gas comes in at the bottom and then at the top, we are pumping water into the tower. And the gas dissolves in the water. And once we have dissolved enough gas in the water, we take this mixture and reinject it into the ground. This is similar to what happens in your soda stream device for example, where you take just your normal tap water, put it in a in a bottle, and then you apply CO2 pressure and then you get the bubbles. We do it in a very similar way, except we do this at a higher pressure, so we can put more CO2 in the water, and then we inject this under pressure into the ground. What happens next is truly amazing. This mixture just enters the geological formation again, and this water is slightly acidic, So what happens is that the water starts to dissolve the rocks. The rocks then release elements, and in this case, mainly calcium and magnesium and iron. Those elements, they react with the CO2 from the water to form minerals. When you combine calcium to the CO2, you create a mineral called calcite, which is then stable in the ground for millions of years.
1: So essentially what what we do is we take the CO2, we dissolve it in water, we inject it into the subsurface and in the subsurface it reacts with the rocks uh, we have in Iceland uh, where it turns into rock. So um, the whole process is taking CO2 gas and turning it into rock underground.
0: Carbon dioxide is not the only harmful gas to be taken out of the steam. They can also take out a toxic gas called hydrogen sulfide.
1: And the hydrogen sulfide is actually toxic for for humans. And there were some stiff regulations put in place in 2009 where we just simply had to cut down our hydrogen sulfide emissions. And that was sort of the financial driver of this project. Really to to keep within the regulations, but um, luckily this method works uh, just as well for CO2. So so now we are we are focusing on, on uh, dissolving both gases in water and injecting them for permanent storage.
0: Therefore, in this process, they can take two harmful gases and turn them directly into rocks. Carbon dioxide is changed into the white crystal known as calcite. And hydrogen sulfide is turned into something you've probably seen before, that yellowish square rock called fool's gold. But forming rocks takes a long time. Anyone who has ever been inside a cave before has seen rocks form. But slowly, very slowly, the drip of water builds up stalactites and stalagmites on the surfaces of the cave. Formations like this grow at a rate of only a few centimeters every thousand years. So how long does it take to form rocks in the CarbFix project?
1: This is a natural process and and there's a bunch of CO2 stored in rocks today just from natural processes. What we are doing essentially is that we are speeding up the process by injecting the CO2 in such high concentrations. And before this project was demonstrated and proven, um, there were some earlier estimates That suggested that this process that we were doing would take uh, hundreds of thousands of years to complete. But to our pleasant surprise, the the process, 95% of all the CO2 injected was found to mineralize within two years. So this was extremely rapid and and surprising.
0: Two years? That is incredible.
2: This goes so fast because we dissolve the CO2 in water and this is a process that can sometimes take a long time under natural conditions but we make sure we essentially do this in a like a mixing tower so everything happens really rapidly there that's the first step and we also do this at high pressure and what happens if you if you do this at high pressure you end up with high concentrations of the gases and usually there is a connection between high concentration and fast reaction rates. Since we have ensured the perfect conditions for mineralizing, then the process happens fast. One of the contributing reasons for it happening so fast is
1: because as you dissolve CO2 in water, it uh, turns into carbonic acid. So the fluid is very acidic. So that starts eating up the rock and releasing all these metals that are needed to combine. So the more CO2, the more acidic uh, the fluid is, and that will accelerate the rock being dissolved or eaten up and forming carbonates, as we call them, in the empty spaces in the rocks.
2: This acidic fluid, it touches rocks next to the borehole... And then it starts to dissolve the rocks. So therefore, you create like open pore space there. But then the fluid goes further into the reservoir. And that's where the minerals form. And with time, the pores there will get filled up. But fortunately, there is a lot of space in the rocks. So when we fill up One portion, the water finds its way to another portion and fills that up. This can happen for a very long time because we have very large volumes of rocks that can accept the CO2.
1: The the storage capacity is simply enormous. Just around Iceland, we have enough capacity to store all the burning of humans' fossil fuels uh, ever, so this is, uh, the, the storage capacity is not the problem. The problem is getting the CO2 uh, into these, uh, these rock formations.
0: Rocks can hold an enormous amount of carbon dioxide. Because of this, these rocks are a very long-term storage system for this gas.
2: We have approximately one gigaton of CO2 stored there already. But what we are doing in this in the time frame of the power plant, which is perhaps thirty to fifty years, we are injecting in the order of ten to twelve thousand tons of CO two per year. So the portion of our activities compared to the natural storage is very tiny. We know from our measurements that the CO two that we inject It's not coming out from monitoring wells. The CO2 has the tendency to form minerals rather than being loose as gas or in the water. And then essentially the CO2 is not mobile because it wants to form minerals. And in contrast with
1: other carbon capture and storage methods, a lot of operations, for example, in the US are focusing on injecting um, CO2 in gas or supercritical phase into the ground, very deep into sedimentary basins in, in, in empty oil wells, for example. And that method has the problem of leakage that uh, people are are afraid that this will not uh, hold and the, the co2 has the tendency to rise up with our injection the fluid that we are injecting is actually heavier than the surrounding so it wants to sink rather than rise up so in the short term we are not worried about leaking out co2 and this has been confirmed in our observations
0: But let's go one step farther instead of just reducing emissions from this method of power generation Why don't we try to take the carbon that is already in the atmosphere and also turn that into rocks? This means that we could take emissions from let's say an airplane flying overhead or even a coal plant that produced emissions 30 years ago To do this, it's a bit more tricky but it might be a vital step in turning back the clock and reversing some of the damage we've already done.
1: So the beauty of this direct air capture is that you have these units, uh, they basically look like uh, filters or or, or small vacuum cleaners. The beauty of it is that you can place it pretty much anywhere where you have these storage uh, infrastructure already in place. So you could imagine scaling this up uh, a lot and, and you can simply just place, place them where you like. In theory, you can be sucking CO2 out of the air that was with molecules that were originally emitted by a plane. Unfortunately, this technology is, is somewhat expensive still, but it has a lot of potential. And we have been doing this for almost two years now.
2: We started a collaboration with a company from Switzerland called Climeworks because they, at that time, they had developed a technology to capture CO2 from the air. However, they didn't have the technology to inject this into the ground. We had that technology and we had already adopted that to our industrial process. So what we decided to do few years ago and started to demonstrate in 2017, was to build a complete loop where you capture CO2 from air, take the CO2 into our process, and then inject it into the ground to form minerals. Uh, This we are doing on a pilot scale already. We, for example, integrate this into our power plant. So we provide electricity and hot water to the process of Climeworks and the unit from Climeworks sends the CO2 into the process we already have. What we are doing now, we are injecting a mixture of CO2 captured from the atmosphere and the CO2 that we capture from our own power plant and we inject all of the CO2 into the ground for mineralization.
0: Right now, CarbFix is taking 66,000 tons of harmful gases out of the atmosphere. Two-thirds of this is carbon dioxide. But there are over 40 billion tons of extra carbon dioxide currently in the atmosphere. This means if we were to use solely this technology to remove the carbon from the atmosphere, we would need millions of sites located around the world where vacuums would remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turn it into rock.
2: What is happening with this technology, as with many other technologies, it is becoming more efficient and more compact as we go by. So I wouldn't be able to speculate how the technology will be in 10 years' time, but as we see it, you know, with the current technology, we would need huge areas for these operations.
0: But technology is developing very quickly. What was a dream just a few years ago is now realized today. This technology that we're talking about didn't even exist a few years ago. Who knows how far this will go?
2: Nobody said fighting climate change was an easy task. And at the moment, there is a large infrastructure needed for this. But we also see that, for example, in our case, the investment costs to making our power plant emission-free is perhaps only in the order of 1% to 3% of the total cost of the power plant. So it's not that big deal, really. And we can also see that the the cost of direct air capture technologies, they are going down as they as the technology advances. I would say that the most important thing now is to test this, on larger scale than we are doing, and then while we are operating them, we can develop these technologies to become smaller and more efficient.
1: The method that we're using now is pretty cheap when you compare it to uh, other, other types of carbon capture and storage methods. And it's actually Uh, almost as cheap as paying for the uh, emission quotas put in place by the European Union. So basically, these quotas say how much heavy emitters companies can emit without paying a fee. So these fees have been rising steadily uh, in the past years and have now come to the point where a company will need to pay more for the emission quotas than putting the infrastructure in place to capture their carbon and and store it. So this is a very positive driver for companies. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to put together a map uh, of potential storage sites, uh, not only within Europe, but worldwide, so that companies can really look at this map and we can tell them, okay, what do you need for carbon capture and storage in your site? Do you have favorable bedrock? Do you have enough water on site? can we use seawater instead of fresh water if, we, if you don't have fresh water it will come a possibility for companies worldwide, uh, energy companies industrial facilities producing steel, cement etc to assess uh, if this is viable or if they would prefer business as usual and pay for their quotas
2: We always consider fix to be one tool in the tool chest to combat climate change.
0: The price is going down, technology is developing, and eventually this technology may be deployed at larger and larger scales. Climate change should scare you, but it shouldn't scare you so much that you completely despair. I believe there are ways that we could overcome this together. Whether you're a child listening now, maybe you're the future scientist who comes up with a great idea that could change the world. Maybe you're in college right now, and you have a great idea. You just need someone to work with you to help you develop it. Maybe you're in the power business, developing cleaner ways of generating power. Maybe you're a politician who can change policy. Maybe you're a scientist who takes core samples in the Arctic to show people that climate change is indeed real. Perhaps you're a journalist who can communicate with others and tell them ways that we can improve. Or perhaps you're just someone listening at home, asking, what could I do? Well, you could support clean energy sources. You could vote for people who take this problem seriously. You could take a carpool, clean up your neighborhood, or even tell people that you heard this podcast. If we're all doing something small, it adds up to something big. Spark Dialogue podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us at the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcast. It was great to have you join us today, and I look forward to seeing you in two weeks for another episode. And remember, you can join the growing podcast community and become more involved in the podcast at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me, Others were clips from Spatial Winds by Kevin MacLeod, Route 17 by DeJol, Skydub by Psychic, Ida Know, The Grapes of Wrath Mix by Spitting Merkaba, and Start to Grow, the CDK mix by Analog by Nature. More information and links to these songs can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.